Hi everyone, Andrew here. Soon, it will be time to start a new book on Send Me to Sleep, and we want you to help us decide what to read. Follow the link in the episode show notes and submit your vote. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 70 to 74 of Stories of Greece by Mary McGregor. In the last chapters, we learned of Alcibiades, the favourite of Athens. In tonight's story, we will learn of one of the first great philosophers, Socrates. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 70 Socrates the Philosopher Socrates was born in 469 BC. He was not a noble like Alcibiades, but a man of humble birth. Nor was he handsome as was his disciple, but plain, even ugly, the people said. He was small, too and dressed with little care. If anyone wished to find the philosopher, he knew that he had only to go to the marketplace or into the streets. Here, from early morning until late at night, Socrates was to be seen, and always was talking, talking to all who were willing to listen. And there were ever many who were not only willing, but eager to hear what the teacher had to say, for his words were so wise, his conversations so strange. Socrates believed that the gods had sent him to teach the Athenians. From his boyhood, he had heard a voice within him, bidding him to do this, not to do that. He often spoke of this voice to those who became his disciples. It became known as the demon of Socrates. The philosopher was a soldier as well as a teacher, and his philosophy taught him how to endure hardship as well or even better than could the ordinary Athenian. In heat or in cold, he wore the same clothing 
and in all weathers he walked with bare feet. He ate little and drank less, whether he was in camp or in the city. Xanthippe, the wife of Socrates, had not a good temper, and she would often scold the philosopher. That may have been because while he was teaching wisdom in the marketplace, Xanthippe was at home, wondering how to provide food for her husband and their children with the few coins she possessed. Socrates was never paid by his disciples. And so it often happened that Xanthippe found it difficult to get food and clothing for her household. The philosopher taught for many years, but at length, in 399 BC, his enemies accused him of speaking against the gods of Athens. He had even dared, so they said, to speak of new gods whom the people should worship, and that was a crime worthy of death. Socrates took little trouble to defend himself against the accusations of his enemies. His demon, he said, would not allow him to plead for his life. So he was condemned to death, but only by a majority of five or six votes out of six hundred. For thirty days, Socrates was in prison and he spent the time in talking to his friends, just as he had been used to doing in the marketplace. One of his disciples, named Crito, bribed the jailer to allow his prisoner to escape, but Socrates refused to flee. He did not fear death, but faced it calmly as he faced life. On the day before the sentence was carried out, he talked quietly to his disciples of the life to which he was going, for he believed that his soul, which was his real self, would live after he laid aside his body as a garment. When the cup of hemlock, a poisoned draught, was brought to him, his friends wept, but he took the cup in his hand and drank the contents as though it were a draught of wine. His last words to Crito were to remind him to pay a debt. Crito, we owe a cock to Asulpius, he said. Discharge the debt and by no means omit it. Asulpius was the god of medicine and in this way Socrates showed his reverence for the religious customs of his country. This was the man who found in Alcibiades, despite his wild ways, a noble mind and a kind heart. These he determined to educate, and his pupil was quick to see that Socrates spoke truth to him. He soon learned to appreciate his kindness and to stand in awe of his virtue. Sometimes, indeed, the words of his master overcame him so much as to draw tears from his eyes and to disturb his very soul. 
So dear did the philosopher become to Alcibiades that he often lived in the same tent with him and shared his simple meals. Yet sometimes he was tempted by his flatterers when they begged him to come to spend the days in pleasure and the nights in feasting. Then he would yield to their entreaties and for a while desert and even avoid his master. But the philosopher did not leave his pupil unchecked to do as he wished. He would pursue him as if he had been a fugitive slave. He reduced and corrected him by his addresses, and made him humble and modest, by showing him in how many things he was deficient, and how very far from perfection in virtue. Chapter 71 Alcibiades Praises Socrates One of the most famous disciples of Socrates was Plato. He loved his master well and wrote down many of his conversations so that his words may still be read. In a book named Symposium, Plato tells us that Socrates and his friends met at a banquet one day and spoke to each other in praise of love. When it came to Alcibiades' turn to speak, he was eager to tell of the love that he had for Socrates. He began by begging the others not to laugh if he said first of all that Socrates was like the images of the god Silenus which they had often seen in the shops of Athens. Now, Silenus was a satyr, a strange figure that was half man, half goat. In his mouth were pipes and flutes upon which he played, while his images were made to open, and within each might be seen the figure of a god. As the happy company thought of the uncouth figure of the satyr, at which they had often stared in the shop windows, they could not but laugh at Alcibiades for comparing his master to such an image. But when the young nobleman went on to speak of the god that was hidden in Socrates, just as the image of one was concealed in the body of the satyr, it may be that the laughter of the happy company was hushed, for in truth the disciple could say no greater thing about the master he loved than this, that within him he bore the likeness of a god. But Silenus was not the only satyr that reminded Alcibiades of his master. Marcius, a wonderful flute player, also made him think of Socrates. For, said Alcibiades, are you not a flute player, Socrates? That you are, and a far more wonderful performer than Marcius. He indeed, with instruments, used to charm the soul of men by the power of his breath. But you produced the same effect with your voice only 
and do not require the flute. That is the difference between you and him. Pericles and other great Athenian orators Alcibiades had heard, he said unmoved, while Socrates' words, even at second hand and however imperfectly repeated, amaze and possess the souls of every man, woman, and child who comes to hear them. Alcibiades then told his astonished listeners how his master's eloquence held him as with chains of gold. This Marsyas, he said, has often brought me to such a pass that I have felt as if I could hardly endure the life which I am leading, and I am conscious that if I did not shut my ears against him and fly from the voice of the siren, he would detain me until I grew old, sitting at his feet, for he makes me confess that I ought not to live as I do, neglecting the wants of my own soul and busying myself with the concerns of the Athenians. Therefore I hold my ears and tear myself away from him. So greatly did the words of Socrates disturb Alcibiades, that sometimes he even wished that his master were dead and could trouble him no more. And yet, I know, he adds quickly, that I should be much more sorry than glad if he were to die, so that I am at my wit's end. But it was not only his master's eloquence that Alcibiades praised before the company of revellers. It was his deeds as well. During the Polyponnesian War, both Socrates and Alcibiades were present at the siege of Potidaea. There we messed together, said Alcibiades, and I had the opportunity of observing his extraordinary power of sustaining fatigue and going without food. In the faculty of endurance, he was superior not only to me, but to everybody. There was no one to be compared to him. Yet at a festival, he was the only person who had any real power of enjoyment. Cold, too, Alcibiades said. Socrates could bear without flinching. The winter at Potidaea was severe, the frost intense. The Athenian soldiers stayed indoors when they could. When they were forced to be out, they put on as many extra clothes as they could find. Their feet they swathed in felt and fleeces. But Socrates, with his bare feet on the ice and in his ordinary dress, marched better than the other soldiers who had shoes, and they looked daggers at him because he seemed to despise them. Yet another tale of his endurance Alcibiades told to the listening company. One morning, he said, Socrates was thinking about something which he could not resolve. He would not give it up, 
but continued thinking from early dawn until noon. There he stood, fixed in thought, and at noon attention was drawn to him, and the rumour ran through the wandering crowd that Socrates had been standing and thinking about something ever since the break of day. At last, in the evening, after supper, some Ionians out of curiosity, it was now summer, brought out their mats and slept in the open air that they might watch him and see whether he would stand all night. There he stood all night until the following morning, and with the return of light, he offered up a prayer to the sun and went his way. Not even yet had Alcibiades exhausted the praise of his master. The happy company listened spellbound and bewildered to the young noble. They had not guessed how well he loved, how gravely he had studied the words and ways of Socrates. Now it was of the courage of his master that he wished to tell, for Socrates had saved his life in battle. This was, said Alcibiades, the engagement in which I received the prize of valour, for I was wounded and he would not leave me, but he rescued me and my arms, and he ought to have received the prize of valour which the generals wanted to confer on me, partly on account of my rank, and I told them so, this Socrates will not impeach or deny, but he was more eager than the general, that I, and not he, should have the prize. When the Athenians fled after the defeat of Delium, the young nobleman was on horseback, and being himself safe, he watched Socrates, who was among the foot soldiers. There you might see him, said Alcibiades, just as he is in the streets of Athens, stalking like a pelican and rolling his eyes, calmly contemplating enemies as well as friends, and making very intelligible to anybody even from a distance that whoever attacked him would be likely to meet with a stout resistance, and in this way, he and his companions escaped. With one more tribute to his master, Alcibiades ended his discourse on love. His absolute unlikeness to any human being that is, or ever has been, is perfectly astonishing. His are the only words which have a meaning in them, and also the most divine, extending to the whole duty of a good and honourable man. This, friends, is my praise of Socrates. You will be glad to know that Socrates valued the love of his disciple and returned it. I only love you, said the philosopher whereas other men love what belongs to you and your beauty, which is not you. It is fading away, 
just as your true self is beginning to bloom. And I will never desert you, if you are not spoiled and deformed by the Athenian people. For the danger which I most fear is that you will become a lover of the people and will be spoiled by them. Many a noble Athenian has been ruined in this way. Chapter 72 The Images of Hermes Are Destroyed In the island of Sicily, there were many different states. In some of these dwelt Greeks who owned Corinth and their mother city. Trade between Sicily and Corinth was good, and because of this, Corinth was growing more powerful than Athens liked. War broke out in 416 BC between Segesta and Selinus, two cities in the west of Sicily. When Selinus was joined by another town named Syracuse, the Segestans in dismay sent to the Athenians to ask for their help. It had long been the ambition of Alcibiades to conquer Sicily. He believed, too, that it would add to the glory of Athens if the island became part of the Athenian Empire. So he now urged the assembly to send a fleet to Sicily, reminding them that if it could conquer Syracuse, it would then be in its power to ruin the trade of Corinth with Sicily. He did not tell the Athenians how great his ambitions were, but he told them enough to make them wish to help the Segestans, that they might in this way gain new territory for Athens. The assembly made up its mind and sent ambassadors to Segesta to find out if the town was able, as she said she was, to provide money to carry on the war, if the Athenians provided soldiers. When the ambassadors returned in the spring of 415 BC, they brought back with them a sum of money from the grateful Segestans. They reported too that the wealth of the city was far greater than they had dreamed, but although the ambassadors did not know until too late, they had been deceived by the townsfolk. For the rich plate and splendid ornaments with which the Segestans had adorned each feast to which the ambassadors had been invited were taken secretly from house to house, so that the gold and silver dishes that dazzled the eyes of the Athenians were always the same, although they believed that each of their hosts owned the splendid dishes with which his table was laden. The sacred treasures of their temples, too, the Segestans pretended were of gold, while in reality they were of silver but the ambassadors were convinced that the people they had visited were rich, and their report made the Athenians ready to do as Alcibiades and his party wished. 
So it was agreed that sixty vessels should be sent to help of Segesta. Nicias, bent as ever on peace, did all he could to hinder the expedition. But when, in spite of all he could say, the assembly still determined to send a fleet to Sicily, he persuaded it to at least increase the number of ships from sixty to a hundred. Nicias himself, along with Lamachus and Alcibiades, was appointed commander of the expedition. But the night before the fleet was to sail, a strange event took place. All over the city, at the corner of the streets, in some niche of a public building, in front of the house of the citizens, stood statues or busts of the god Hermes on short pedestals or pillars. These figures were reverenced by the Athenians, just as the image of the Madonna by the roadside or in the villages and towns abroad is worshipped by the Roman Catholics. On the night before the expedition, the statues of Hermes were chipped and broken so that the god could no longer be recognised. In the morning, as the Athenians went along the streets of the city, bent on their usual business, these poor defaced images stared them in the face. Little groups gathered at street corners, before public buildings, wherever they had been used to seeing the statues of Hermes. At first they gazed at their mutilated god in fear, but fear soon changed to anger. Who had dared to do this impious thing, they asked one another. It would surely bring down the wrath of the gods on the Sicilian expedition. It was perhaps natural that the people should suspect their favourite, Alcibiades. Was he not often reckless and ever a mischief-maker? They were too excited to remember that he was not likely to do anything to delay the expedition on which his heart was set. When he heard that the people thought that he had defaced the images, Alcibiades demanded to be brought to trial, but no proof had yet been found of his guilt, and it was decided that the fleet should sail and that Alcibiades should go with it. Chapter 73 Alcibiades Escapes to Sparta A great crowd gathered at the Piraeus to see the fleet set sail for Sicily. Groups clustered together, talking eagerly of the new empire that was to be won in the West, and the glory that Athens would gain from her conquest. It was a noisy, happy crowd. Suddenly, the heralds called for silence and a hush fell upon the light-hearted folk as the priests prayed to the god for the success of the expedition. Sacrifices, too, 
were offered by officers and sailors alike. Then to the strain of a hymn, in which the crowd of onlookers joined, the anchors were raised and the fleet sailed slowly away. When the ships reached Sicily, each commander had a different plan to propose. Nicias, having learned how the ambassadors had been deceived, wished to sail homewards without helping the Segestans. Lamachus, a brave, blunt soldier, wished to sail at once to Syracuse and take the city by a sudden attack. Alcibiades proposed that they should do nothing until they had made allies of those cities that were not friendly to Syracuse, and to this plan the other commanders at length agreed. Meanwhile, two ships from Athens had followed Alcibiades to Sicily, for the assembly had determined to arrest him and bring him home to be tried for the destruction of the images of Hermes. Alcibiades went quietly on board one of the ships, but he knew that if he went back to Athens, he would be condemned to death. So daring a deed as the spoiling of their god was more than the Athenians could forgive, even to their favourite and there were many who believed he was guilty. So when the ship reached a seaport town in Italy, Alcibiades slipped on the shore and escaped from his enemies. In his absence, the Athenians condemned him to death and confiscated his property, while the curses of the gods were called down upon his head. Alcibiades was very angry when he heard what his countrymen had done. In his wrath, he cried, I will make them feel that I am alive. And he fulfilled his threat, for he went at once to the Spartans, the enemy of his own country, and told them the plans of the Athenian generals. He bade them send a clever general named Gylippus, with an army to Syracuse, to help the city to withstand the attacks of the Athenians. He also advised them to build a fort at Desileia, a town in Attica, and to send troops there to harass the Athenians as much as possible. To betray his country in this way, would have been an unworthy deed for any Athenian. It was the more unworthy in Alcibiades, because he had learned from Socrates the true meaning of honour and righteousness. The Spartans were eager to profit by the advice of the traitor, and they saw for themselves the wisdom of his words. But in their hearts, they did not trust the man who had betrayed his country. Alcibiades stayed in Sparta for some time, and while he was there, he tried to win the confidence of the people by doing as they did. People who saw him wearing his hair cut close, bathing in cold water, 
eating coarse meal and dining on black broth, doubted, or rather could not believe, that he had ever had a cook in his house, or had even seen a perfume, or had worn a mantle of purple. It was said that Alcibiades was like a chameleon, because just as it changes its colour as it chooses, so could the Athenian change his dress and his customs as he willed. Chapter 74 The Siege of Syracuse Nicias and Lamachus now determined to attack Syracuse without delay. They succeeded in seizing the high ground which joined the town to the mainland of Sicily. Across this ground, they began to build a wall, meaning to cut the Syracusians off from help by land. The Athenian fleet then sailed into the harbour of Syracuse, that so no help might reach the city by sea. But before the wall was finished, two things happened to frustrate the plans of the Athenians. The Syracusians did not mean to let the enemy finish the wall if they could prevent it, so they sailed out of the city to drive them away. In the struggle that followed, Lamachus was killed, and Nicias was left alone to carry on the siege. But what was perhaps even worse for the Athenians than the death of their general was the arrival of Gylippus, the Spartan commander. Almost before the Athenians were aware, Gylippus, at the head of his troops, marched into Syracuse. Nor did he rest until he had driven them from the hill on which they were encamped and forced them to take up their position close to the harbour. Nicias was ill, and his illness made him more hopeless than perhaps he would otherwise have been. He wrote to the assembly to tell it that the Spartans had wrested from the Athenians all that they had gained, and that they were now themselves in danger of being besieged. The fleet, he said, had been drawn up on the beach for months and would have to be repaired before it was seaworthy. Even then it would be difficult to man the vessels, for many of the crew had died and many more were out of practice. So faint of heart was the Athenian general that, at the end of his gloomy report, he urged that the whole enterprise should be given up, or if not, that at least a new fleet might be sent out without loss of time. For himself, he begged that he might be recalled, as he was ill and unfit for his duties. The assembly refused this last request, but it sent a new fleet to his help commanded by Eurymedon and Domestines. 
Meanwhile, Gylippus was not idle. He attacked the Athenians both by land and sea. By land he was victorious, but at sea he was defeated. Undaunted, he at once ordered that the bows of the Spartan vessels should be made heavier and shorter. When this had been done, he again attacked the enemy's fleet, and when the battle ended, Gylippus held the entrance to the harbour. The Athenians were now in great peril, for they were besieged both by land and sea. They could not leave the harbour unless they cut their way through the fleet of the victorious Syracusians, and this they had no courage to attempt. But on the day after the battle which had seemed to seal their fate, hope awoke once more in the Athenian ranks, for the new fleet, under Eurymedon and Domestines, came in sight. The new commanders at once determined that the hill above Syracuse must be retaken. So on a moonlit night, the attempt was made. But although a band of Athenians gained the hill, took a fort and repulsed six hundred of the enemy, they were soon afterwards put to flight. Many of the soldiers flung away their shields as they were driven down the hill and fell over the cliffs. Others were pushed back upon their comrades who were still climbing upwards so that soon the whole army was in confusion. The disaster crushed the spirit of the Athenians. Many of the soldiers, too, had fever caused by the marshy ground on which the camp was pitched. Many more were ill or wounded. Eurymedon and Domestines advised Nicias to order the whole army to sail away before the entrance of the great harbour was entirely blockaded, but to this he would not consent. It seemed that he was afraid to return to Athens to tell that the expedition had failed. Demosthenes then urged Nicias at least to leave the harbour and sail to a point where their supplies could not be stopped by the enemy. This too Nicias refused to do. But soon after his refusal, Large reinforcements reached the Spartans, and the general's obstinacy gave way. He ordered the fleet to prepare to leave the harbour. The men were glad to desert their unhealthy quarters, and got ready in haste, but secretly, that the Syracusians might not suspect their plan. All was ready, when... On the 27th of August, 413 BC, the night before the fleet was to sail, an eclipse of the moon took place. Nicias was filled with superstitious fear, 
What might the eclipse not portend? He sent the soothsayers, who said that the fleet must on no account leave the harbour for twenty-seven days. To disobey the oracle would be fatal, so Nicias believed, and he at once forbade the fleet to sail until twenty-seven days had passed. <laughs>